Thanks, Josh. Thanks, guys. Um, yeah, I echo what Josh is talking about. Uh, there was such an anticipation of being able to do the live stream outside and being together. And it just seems that we're constantly challenged almost every week. Um, and so I think as, as we just go through this time, you know, is, especially in our community, we just had a recent shooting uh, in our local area. And so that was, uh, for a lot of people, very frightening and very disconcerting and certainly, you know, difficult uh, when you're in a smaller community and you have these things occur. So I, I know that this is indeed a, a very testing, challenging time, and we're going through personal and also community challenges and pains and sorrows. And so with that, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm 119 this morning, and hopefully there will be a lot of encouragement through this, as well as just a, a greater understanding of walking in uh, what God has to say and walking in his presence. Um, this is obviously, to be you know really directly honest with you, a, a very difficult psalm to teach from. It's uh, easily the most difficult psalm to read through. It's 176 verses. I mean, I'm just imagining the the worship set guy who you know was going to sing you know with the band 176 in the temple. Uh, that is one stinking long worship set. Um, <laughs> Now, we're not going to go through all these verses, obviously. Yeah, you can be thankful of that this morning. We'd be here till this afternoon. But I will simply go through this and, and try to highlight and put into a, a an edible portion of this particular psalm and all the connotations of it where the Lord is speaking about his law, his commandments, his precepts, his ordinances, um, and, and to explain this a little bit and how we relate to it as followers of Jesus in this time of what we call a time of grace and how this uh, works in conjunction with walking with God. So let's dive in a little bit. And if you have a Bible or if you have your smartphone uh, or tablet at home, go ahead and just open to it. But this is a, uh, a song or a psalm that was written over some period of time um, and then later compiled together. We don't know when. We don't even know the author, per se. But because there's not a definite flow of thought from beginning of the psalm to the end, the sections and verses are not like a chain, uh, which you know follows a logic system where one link is connected to another, but it's really more like a string of pearls, and each pearl has an equal but independent value to it. So we'll be kind of diving into that this morning. Um, throughout Scripture, when God speaks to his people, um, there are always declarations of his desires that he wants us to follow and obey. They are never suggestions. Um, and I think that differentiates from anything else we read or listen to that when it comes to what God says, he never suggests. He speaks with declarative authority of his desires. And rather than dead words on a page, Psalm 119 is revealing these living expressions from the heart of the living God. Now, there's a lot of examples uh, throughout history of godly men and women who have highly praised, uh, prized this Psalm 119 as inspiration and strengthening their lives. 
But again, for time's sake, I'm going to simply relate one story of one man's life. Uh, some of you may be familiar with William Wilberforce, uh, not a name that's common today by any stretch, but he was an important British politician and faithful follower of Jesus. And for 20 years, he worked to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire. Eventually, through peaceful and persistent protest, this man, along with other believers, they established the legislation that broke the back of slave traders throughout the entire British Empire around the world. And during a time of great turmoil, of political unrest and racial injustice, he wrote in his diary in 1819, and he says this, I walked from Hyde Park Corner repeating the 119th Psalm in great comfort. Now, why? I believe because this man knew that God's decisions, his ways, his truth and justice would prevail in the end. He had a sure word and he had a sure understanding of God's heart and mind and that it would, his cause would prevail in the end. 20 years. Amazing. Another thing that we'll encounter when we read this particular psalm or really any, any part of scripture is that a believer's actions or attitude doesn't match sometimes this psalm. Um, It's very easy to feel discouraged or condemned by this encounter when we encounter a a verse or a person's life where they're stating something about their relationship with God that doesn't match ours. Uh, My own confession as as I was rereading this psalm was like, for instance, I... I treasure your words more than all the treasure and gold possible. And I just sat there and go, that's not how I feel. That's not a practice that I feel. Or another one, I I weep day and night for those that don't obey your word. That's not a practice that I participate in much. There's times I've wept over people's soul, but again, It's important that we understand that as we're looking closer in this song that we realize the writer of the psalm or writers, they are constantly asking God to conform their hearts and minds to God's thoughts, desires, and ways. So be encouraged to follow his example uh, in your discipleship walk, that you're asking God to give you his desires, his thoughts what he loves, asking him to give you a heart and a mind to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. And that way we're drawing closer to the person who has chosen us. Now, Psalm 119 is alphabetical. Uh, there's eight stanzas that commence with one letter in the Greek, in the Hebrew alphabet, and then another eight with the next letter. And so the whole psalm proceeds by this eight stanza composition through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And I, and this is by design as the Spirit of God inspired the writer of this song. I believe one important reason was to reveal to his people that for every word they spoke, God's revealed word was intimately linked to their lives, whether they acknowledged him or not. For every people group in this world, really, when you look at it, 
Their language is a vital element of their identity. Would you agree to that? God in his mercy reveals himself to every tribe and language around the world. Every nation is touched by his voice by various means. He speaks the language of every tribe, tongue, and nation in this world. And it's fascinating to me that one title that Jesus is called by is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the most spoken common language when the New Testament was written. So again, just heavy thing to think about, contemplate, and as we go through this, uh, this will become a little bit better known. Now, in this psalm, there are eight basic words used to describe the scriptures with various translations. You're going to find the word is interspersed in different ways. But there's eight basic words that we're going to go over this morning, which are God's written revelation to us. Let's look at the first slide. And uh, hopefully it's showing up on your TV screen there or on your tablet. But one one term used, and it's a translated word in the English. It's used 24 times, but it, it's a compilation of two different Hebrew words. Uh, first Hebrew word is the idea, which is debar, which is the idea of the spoken word, God's word revealed to man, proceeding from his mouth and revealed by him to us. Um also, second Hebrew translation is the word imra, and it's similar to the meaning debar, but it, it's a little different in the sense that it denotes anything that God has spoken, commanded, or promised. For instance, uh, using that first Hebrew word I was talking about in verse 19 of Psalm 119, it says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Now, it's interesting that that Jesus equates his spoken words to the spoken word of God here in Psalm 119, as it gives an illustration of two different houses on two different soil platforms. One house he talks about, about, about being on sand and one on a solid rock. And he equates it to his spoken words. Jesus said, whoever takes heed to my word or listens to my word and keeps it, I will liken his house to be the one that sits on a rock. And when the winds and the waves and the storm comes, the house stands. Whereas he contrasts it to the house that's sitting on sand as being one of a person who hears Jesus' words but does not take action on them. And when the winds and the storms and the rain come, the house is washed away. This is the idea here of the writer of Psalm 119 is that anyone seeking to keep his way pure is by guarding it, by taking heed to his word and what God speaks. That second Hebrew word is in verse 162. Just gave you an example there. It says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. And again, highlighting a little bit of that difference of when you face that, what is my heart attitude? So, I'm just going to ask a few questions. What value do we put to what he says? I think we need to examine our hearts on that. What ways are there to increase my love for this pearl of great price, which is his spoken voice? 
And how much do I love him? Because remember, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll keep my word. So again, this is a very thoughtful, deep psalm, and we're going to continue to dive in and, heck, let the water go above our heads as we're trying to swim through this. The second slide uh, that's going to come up here and term that, that is used in Psalm 119 is the word law, which is where we get uh, the, uh, the word for the Torah, which is the Hebrew scriptures of the law. And it's used 25 times in Psalm 119. A parent verb coming from this word means to teach or direct. Therefore, it means coming from God, it means both law and revelation. It can be used of one single command or the whole body of the law or the Torah. I chose one verse, which is verse 44. And it says, it says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Now, for, for New Testament believers, especially in this time frame, I, that's, a, that's a very difficult concept to understand what that means in relationship to our walk with him. And I believe it's, a, it's really necessary to spend a little t- time defining our relationship with God in the context of his law right now and the rest of the terms, actually, that we're looking at today. It's going to be very short and by no means complete for time's sake, but I think it's really crucial for our walk according to what I read in the scriptures as disciples and with Jesus that we understand how to walk out our relationship in relationship to the law. Jesus says in Matthew's account of the good news, he says, do you think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets? I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, to the end of time, to the end of what we call our normal world and its timeline, the smallest mark or letter will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And then Jesus proceeds to quote certain commandments and precepts and laws and ordinances from the Torah and describes then what it means to fulfill it. For instance, in Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said to those in ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. So he's talking about an attitude of heart. Jesus is clearly showing that God wants his law to be obeyed from the heart and not mere external obedience. In fact, Jesus even points out that to be righteous from God's perspective is impossible by just trying to keep the law from an outward obedience. Later on in the New Testament, Paul states that when the law came, it showed just how depraved our sinful nature was compared to God's nature and who he is and who he was. Now, in Romans 8, and again, this is just an overview here, but just take these in and think about these. In Romans 8, Paul describes the law of Moses. And he says that the law of Moses was unable to save us, not because it was weak, but because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. 
He sent his only son in a body like the bodies that we have in our flesh. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins so that the righteous standard of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to our sinful nature, but according to the Holy Spirit. Because what happens when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus comes in, because he fulfilled every part of the law, that he works from the inside out our conformance to what God says and commands, his law. And we walk that out not just with external obedience, as I read there in Matthew, but that internal obedience of love by the Spirit of God. Now, again, this is a deep subject that has a lot of rivulets to go out and how this works out. But I ask you to study and think about that. Because really a common thought that I've come across in my 40 plus years of of serving God's people and teaching and doing that is that there's this attitude that the law has no influence on us. We just simply walk in grace and everything's forgiven. And that couldn't be further from the truth of God's word. So hopefully as we dive deeper into here uh, with the rest of the terms, you'll be able to get a, a better idea of how this is true. For instance, the next slide, which is the word judgments, which is used about 23 times. It's uh, from the Hebrew word shafat, which means to judge, determine, regulate, order, and discern. So these judgments are over our words and our works. And they show the rules by which we should be regulated. And cause us to discern what is right and wrong and then to decide accordingly. I give an example there in, in verse 39 of Psalm 119 where he says, Turn away the disgrace I dread. Isn't that funny how he, he understands the shame nature? He says, Turn away the disgrace that I dread. Indeed, your judgments are good. Now, When the writer here is saying that God's judgment or decisions over him and what he, God, determines for him is good, the writer concludes that by having God regulate his life, that he's been able to discern from right and wrong and chosen wisely. Why is it that we as a culture hear the word judgment in a negative connotation? Have you ever thought about that? Because here the writer and many writers in the New Testament talk about God's judgments as being good. That his decisions over us are good and for our good. Are we at this point, you know, again, I'm using a common phraseology that we're hearing today, cancel culture. Are we canceling the concept of judgment because of the culture we live in? Or are we being renewed by the truth of God and his judgments, and how he determines that they're good for us. And the writer agrees with that. So think about that. The next slide is the word testimonies. And it's used 23 times. 
And the, this word that the writer is using in the Hebrew is related to the word for witness, like a court witness or a proclaiming witness. The writer states his belief here in his testimonies, and it signifies the loyalty to the terms of the covenant made between the Lord and his people. Notice the verse that I chose there in verse 36 of 119. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. First, I think the writer understands by experience that God declares what he sees and knows. He verifies, God verifies by an oath or a promise what he's going to do. And then proclaims that he's speaking the truth. And then God does works of power that demonstrate that his testimony is trustworthy. He is a faithful witness. It's noteworthy to me that Jesus said and did the very same thing in the gospel accounts about himself, elevating himself to the level of being God. Because he did exactly that very same thing. He declared what he saw and heard. He verified by a promise that he was going to do it. Then said he was speaking the truth and then did works of power that demonstrated that his testimony was trustworthy. Secondly, I believe the psalmist here asks for God to do an inner work for his heart and his mind. He's recognizing his own inability and that his selfish desires can take over at any time. This is a constant theme throughout the entire song that the writer or writers call out to God to do a work of changing their desires. And it's a desirable practice for us to emulate. The fourth term in the next slide is commandments. And this is used 22 times. This word emphasizes the straight authority of what is said. It's from a person who has the right to give orders. Verse 172 of Psalm 119. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Now, to put it in a term of maybe it's a little easier to understand this, think of a time when someone gave you an order. Put that in your mind right now. Think of someone, think of a time when someone gave you an order. Did the unrighteousness of that person make it difficult to carry out that order? Or was it because you didn't believe that that person had the authority that you didn't carry it out? Or did you just have a BA? No, it's not your college attainment. That's just short for a bad attitude. All of these things come into play when we hear God's commands. What do we believe, really believe in our heart of hearts and in our minds about the person of God? What about the attitudes of our heart?
what action is this psalmist doing here in this verse in regards to his relationship with God's word and his commands? What's he doing here? Again, remember Jesus' words, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to sort of meditate and think about these questions. Pose them to your own heart. Call out to the Lord about this. And begin to just deepen yourself in this relationship. The next slide talks about statutes. And again, this is used 21 times. It's, it's, it's kind of evenly balanced, if you notice, throughout the entire psalm. Anywhere from 20 to 23 verses. It's kind of sort of interesting. Now, the noun is derived from the verb means to engrave or inscribe. I think it's the idea of the written word of God and the authority of his written word. It's a declaring of his authority and power in giving us laws and decreed limits. Verse 134. I've written this out here. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. Sometimes it's really difficult to understand his love and his mercy within the written statutes and decreed limits that God has put down. I'm going to give you an example from uh, 1 Corinthians, which we're going to be going back to when we're done with the Psalms in a few weeks. But there was a man in the Corinthian church at that time that was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, the reaction of the Corinthian believers seemed to have been, well, everything's cool. There's mercy. There's love. There's forgiveness. No problem. Don't worry about it. But Paul, in his letter, says, don't you understand what's going on here? Not even the pagans of which you live among practice such things. What are you doing? What are you thinking? This man needs to be thrown out. In fact, he says, he uses very uh, intense words where he says, I have committed this man to Satan for the destruction of his sinful nature. And he says, don't you understand that just a little yeast can leaven the whole lump? That way, put put away sin from among you. In other words, he was basically stating that God has stated in his written word that there are limitations to our sexual expression as human beings. And he's pointing this out to the Corinthians. Now, in the second letter, we read, when we're talking about the steadfast love of God within the decreed limitations that God has set out, where the man has really gone through a period of changing his heart and mind and going another direction, and he's grieving deeply for his offense. And then in the second letter, the Corinthians don't want him back in because Paul didn't you say to get rid of the guy. So they're not understanding one side of it, and they're not understanding the other side of God's steadfast love and mercy when there's repentance. So... I'm wondering, do we find ourselves in the same place again within our culture? Are we able to determine that what God has written, that there is indeed set decrees and limitations? And can we walk in them and understand how we walk out within grace and truth? Let's go to the next slide. 
which is the word uh, precepts. It's used 21 times. This word is drawn from the position of an officer or an overseer. So kind of place that in your mind. And it's a man who is responsible to look closely into a situation and take action. So the word points to a, the particular instructions of the Lord, our master, as one who cares about detail and prescribes a certain action. I've chosen verse 104 here, where he says, Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. I believe the writer here has gained an understanding that God is the captain of the boat, knows the way through the sea and the right action to take. That any other way would lead to the rocks or a quick ride into some hurricane. I believe the writer has really gained, through experience, to despise any other way of living life apart from how God speaks and directs. The whole of Psalm 119, then, we can sum it up and by saying that re- they're revelations. They're the expression of God himself through what he speaks. That God has ordained limitations, laws, commandments, boundaries, restrictions. In other words, it's a circle of his order in which there's great freedom, joy, mercy, grace, and love inside that circle. And whenever human beings look to throw off the reins of God's authority, anarchy, hatred, and confusion rules. Plus, there's a God who is fighting against such individuals, according to what he's revealed in his word. Let me reread one of the first Psalms that we covered, Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Take a listen to this. The writer, I think it was David, said, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against Yahweh and against his anointed one. And they say, Let us break their chains, they cry and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. Now, sometimes there's an idea that somehow the God of the Old Testament is absolutely different from the God of the New Testament. That couldn't be further from the truth. It's the same God, same Lord, same Master, same Spirit. It's really important that we grasp that and understand that. Listen to John's, uh, it's in his first letter. It's uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, where John says this. And John, the apostle of love. I mean, when you read his his account of Jesus, uh, the good news of Jesus, and he's so filled with love and mercy, you think of just a sweet brother. But listen to what he says here. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Let that sink in. Whenever we're practicing any form, disobedience, 
rebellion, whether it's an ignorance of it. I mean, when we think about ignorance of the law, how many times have you gotten out of a ticket by offering up, well, I didn't know that was there. I didn't know that I was doing that. Unless you're some sweet young thing, blonde hair, nice voice, or maybe you know someone in the DA's office or in the police force, you might get off. But most of us, the cop looks at you and says, sorry, buddy, you broke the law. Here's your ticket. Go pay it. That's what basically John is saying here. But listen to this good news. This is out of Titus 2. We await the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. And again, out of Romans 6, Paul says this, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Isn't that an interesting terminology? Think about that. How can you have absolute freedom and yet be a slave? That's the mirth. That is the wonderful thing about grace and mercy of God. Now, Paul says this. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your human nature. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin, so now offer them the parts of your body in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. That's the walk in the Spirit that we read earlier in Romans 8. So to sum up, and I'm going to have the band come on back up to sing uh, one last song. That's pretty pretty crazy. I finished that in roughly 20 minutes. That's amazing. I'm more amazed. Maybe you guys are amazed. Maybe you don't care. I don't know. But the point here in summing up is that every one of our endeavors, our attitudes, our desires, actions, or words, and in our human English language, from A to Z, literally. God has revealed in his word and through his son the grace and the truth that speaks to every one of these endeavors, attitudes, desires, actions, or words. I think in looking at Psalm 119, a huge question has to continually be in the uppermost part of our mind. Will we listen and obey? Before we knew Jesus, we were enemies of God. But God very clearly says that while we are yet enemies, Christ died for us to redeem us. Now, in his mercy, he has set us free from our old ways of life and imparted to us that same spirit of Jesus in our hearts, the Holy Spirit. And by that, we are able to walk out this relationship to God's commands, his laws, his precepts, his judgments. So, hopefully this has been encouraging to you. Hopefully it gives you a better understanding of what it means in relationship. Uh, as we read Psalm 119, the relationship to his law.